All right, let me uh, apologize up front because the this new microphone that I got was not plugged in correctly, and therefore uh, the audio is terrible. <laughs> and so uh, it's probably more than you know over thirty minutes of this. So hopefully you can fight through it, like I fought through AM radio for a long time. And honestly, I don't care enough to go back and fix it, so sorry. Welcome to Truth Transistor Radio. This is the most awesomest podcast of all time. I'm your host, Rob Hendrick. This podcast is brought to you by Proverbs 1618. Hello, welcome to episode number 32, I believe. Uh, Yeah, episode 32, this is Bible Study Part 8. I'm going to get into some topical, you know, theological topics uh, moving forward here, um, I think I might have mentioned at the end of episode 29, that is, uh, or episode 30, spiritual warfare, that I would go into end times next. But um, in this one, I'm going to, because it was a topic that came up, known as total depravity. Uh, there's Calvinism and things of that nature. That really got me thinking, and I really, it really got on my heart to talk about. So, I think I'm gonna uh, start with some, not start, but continue this the Bible study series with some specific topics. And um, so, this one will be, I guess you could say, um, the question of total depravity of the lost. And um, there's going to be some debates in here and things. And over the next several episodes, um, I'll take up topics like the Sabbath. You know, should Christians keep the Sabbath? Um, baptism, uh, because there's different people that have different views of that um, and, and the sacraments. Maybe I'll include that all in one. Um, and I'm trying to think some other important uh, things like that that might come to mind. Um, this is topic today is something that I guess hasn't really been in the forefront of my mind for a long time. It was something that was debated amongst my friends when we were in college age and between like predestination versus free will kind of thinking. And I took a side at the time and um, sort of decided at some point that it's beyond my understanding and all I know is that if we believe we'll be saved, right? And how that all works and how if God is predestining or opening people's eyes, that really didn't, um, you know, we couldn't really control that part of it, so I just decided to leave it alone. Well, Thinking about it, having a conversation with some friends led me to this again and also to a debate that we might listen to a little bit of here today. 
So um, that's what's on the table for today. And um, I thought I'd talk a little bit about the Kanye West issue, or yay, as he's going by now. And I never really uh, paid much attention to him as a, um, you know, I think because he supported Trump, a lot of conservatives started to like him. Um, I didn't really think much about him. Um, there was some, sorry, the dog's barking in the background here. There was some, uh, I, I guess, uh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> there was some, uh, a lot of conservatives have jumped on board and they love Kanye West because of that. And they, oh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Um, there was some... Um, I guess you could say Christians that I don't respect, <laughs> apostate, what I would call apostate, that were surrounding him, and he was going to a, uh, yeah, I don't know. So I never really bought into it. Like, the same thing with Trump as far as the people that were saying that he was saved were people I didn't respect. Um, anyway, so I don't know if they're saved or not. I'm not making that judgment. But it just seems interesting to me because the false left-right paradigm, which I brought up before, and how people will go out of their way to defend somebody that is, you know, um, on their team, so to speak. If they're red or blue, they will go out of their way, even if they're being completely idiotic. <laughs> and so I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, I didn't really pay much attention. I never bought his album, the gospel album. Some friends did, but I was never really a fan of his music anyway. Um, so I didn't really think, you know, I really wasn't interested. Um, if he really became a Christian, I appreciate that. But there's some red flags here, and I don't mean red. I don't mean to be... Uh, What's the word? <laughs> Just because I use the word red, and you know, the Republican red. Uh, no, no red flags. I mean, there are red flags in here that are concern me about him. Well, anyway, so I... Um, moving forward, all of a sudden Candace Owens is a good friend of it, hers. Uh, of, of, you know, she's become a good friend with him, probably because he supported Trump. That's probably it. Um, and what boggles my mind, and I have other Christian friends and conservative friends that continue to defend him. Um, for a long time, I really didn't say much about it because I, I've been aware of how the media will spin and edit things to make somebody sound, you know, bad or however they want to edit it, you know. Um, I think both sides are guilty of that, the left and the right. So I'm not here to um, to pick a side. I'm, I'm not at all. So I really didn't care enough to really think about it. But then somebody sent me. Um, no, that's that's what it was. It was somebody else who uh, shared a, a clip of him having an interview with Alex Jones, and. In the clip, so Alex Jones is basically um, 
trying to defend him and saying, you're not really a Nazi and the media is trying to make you look bad. And instead of defending himself and saying, yeah, this is what I really meant, he goes on to make it worse. Like he says, yeah, Hitler was really a good guy. And, and I'm like, <laughs> and even Alex Jones, which I think is a disinfo agent, but even he is like not sure what to make of what Kanye is saying. He's kind of, or yay, or, you know, whatever. Anyway, um, he's kind of confused about it. He's like, well, I don't like Hitler. But, you know, but yay kept defending him, and I don't know what point he's trying to make. I have some friends that continue to defend him and say, oh, he's just trolling everybody. And I'm like, well, how do you know that? I mean, what what is the point he's trying to make, you know? Um... I, I don't know. Maybe they're just, you know, some people say he's just trying to say, see, I can say anything, it's free speech, and just to get shock value, I guess. But, you know, those are things that I, I don't agree with. Now, if somebody were to, because I'm a truther, I, I, I'm open, I don't believe in cancel culture either, so I don't believe that, you know, he should be, you know, this whole thing about being deleted from social media is kind of ridiculous. Um, so I believe anyone has the right to speak and say what they believe. And I'm just here to say I I don't know why a lot of people are defending him now. Um, so it, it's just... Uh, but anyway, um, now what I was going to say is concerning Hitler and the, the Nazis and all that stuff. If somebody were to say, I don't think the Holocaust happened, and they give reasons why, I would be open to listening to that, because I, I, I will listen to anybody who has, um, who wants to give, it doesn't mean I'll believe it, it just means I listen, because, you know, if they, if they have enough evidence, maybe it'll convince me, you know. Um, I listened to the Flat Earth thing for several months before I decided to be a globe earther <laughs> and i was open-minded about it too um so if kanye or yay or whatever has a, a point i would like to hear his point but to just kind of say hitler was a good guy you know i liked hitler and blah 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 that's not really helping and anyway um i guess the reason i'm passionate about it is because the Young Turks, and this is kind of where I'm going. You know, if you've heard of the Young Turks, they're on YouTube, they're, they're a liberal show. And I've heard them say things like, conservatives are all racist and they're all bigots, right? And I know that's not true. I mean, most of my friends are conservative and Republicans, um, and they're not racist and bigots. Um, so, but... When people start, like Candace Owens, wants to defend the words of yay, it kind of plays into their hands and say, see, that's what they always believed anyway. They're all Hitler supporters. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of wonder if the whole Kanye yay thing is kind of playing into what the left says the right is and sort of he's purposefully looking, making the right look bad. And because people are so false left-right paradigm, 
there are people that support it. The same thing, you know, is true on the left, of course, when they're supporting things like vaccine mandates. Even, I mean, I used to know liberals that were anti-vaxxers, but you don't hear them anymore. They're all pro-vax now. I, I mean, I know there's always an exception to the rule, but that's kind of a, you know, something I've noticed is how whatever the speaking point of the party is, is how people think. They don't think for themselves anymore. Um, there's been times over the, since I've kind of departed from the false left to right paradigm back in 2008 um, and so, sort of went into the Ron Paul philosophy of total freedom to do whatever you want unless you hurt somebody else or their property. Um, you know, my political view is different than my moral view, you know, in terms of freedom constitution uh, I don't think enforcing religion is a good thing because what are you going to do I mean that doesn't mean they're saved right and I think there's a lot of sin that nobody has argued should be illegal you know like fornication and adultery but they want to make other things I mean, not everybody, but a lot of conservatives want to make gay marriage illegal or pedophilia, which already is, which, um, you know, there's other things to discuss with that. Like, for example, obviously, if somebody is um, a slave, you know, um, in that business, they, you know, that should be illegal, of course. I'm not talking about that, but two consenting adults making a business transaction. Politically, I don't think people should be in prison for that. You know, drugs. I, I'm opposed to drugs, but should people be in prison for taking drugs, for getting high? Well, if they hurt somebody else, yes, just like the alcohol laws. Anyway, I'm kind of getting sidetracked there, but my point is that when there's a speaking point, people will go out of their way to defend the party line, which changes all the time you know ten years ago um, or let me go back to what really <laughs> made me realize this I think it was 2008 when the stock market crashed George W Bush was still president and I believe Republicans in the fall of 2008 so the very end of Bush's uh, presidency um, the, the Republicans were pushing for bailouts and six months later Obama was president oh and, and the Democrats were against it by the way well six months later Obama was president and the Democrats were pushing for bailouts and the Republicans were against it now it was for two different things but Ron Paul was against it both times and I began to pay attention to him and I realized oh well this guy's consistent you know he's not just taking a party line and then, you know, a couple years, or the other thing is Obama was running against the war. He wanted to bring the troops home, which he didn't. He, um, you know, <laughs> exactly what Ron Paul said. Ron Paul said he was really the only one uh, that wanted to bring the troops home, and both parties were really for uh, war. 
And now, I mean, except in rhetoric, right? And now it's the opposite. The Democrats are thinking we should go to war to help Ukraine, and the Republicans are against it. It just seems odd to me. Anyway, um, and then I guess more recently, um, well, a couple of years ago, um, when the election, just before the election, the last presidential election, Trump was pushing for the vaccines, and the Democrats were all reluctant to take it. And as soon as Biden got elected, he was pushing for the vaccines, and the Republicans were reluctant to take it. So it's like, it happens all the time, and people don't realize it. And, um, and I think that's kind of what's happening now. There's people that will defend anything Kanye or Ye does because he's on their team, the red team, right? Even though he's not necessarily on board with Trump anymore, He's still kind of a Republican, or at least claiming to be. But I kind of wonder if it's all a joke. Like, they're purposefully making conservatives look bad. Um, and if you are a true conservative out there, I think it would benefit, you know, if more conservatives would speak out against this stuff. Just because they're on Team Red doesn't mean they're good, right? So... That's kind of a few things I, I wanted to say about that. So, anyway, just just uh, something to think about. All right, on to the topic at hand. So, I guess I want to get into why I decided I wanted to do this topic. Um, the question of total depravity of the lost. Now, let me define that for you. Total depravity means that the anyone who's lost is incapable of ever believing in the gospel unless Christ um, or the Holy Spirit reveals it to them. And only those who are elect will it ever get revealed. And, and I have a really big problem with that. Um, because... That means that there are people that are incapable of ever believing, and yet they will spend, you know, they will go to the lake of fire. They'll be cast in the lake of fire at the end. And to me, let me just give an analogy for what that makes me think about. Suppose that you had a baby, and you said, your baby has to mow the lawn. I'm talking about can't even walk, can't even talk, and infant. And it has to be done in the next week. And if not, you have to put the baby to death. But the baby is incapable of it. However, if the father does it, um, then it counts, let's say. Okay, let's say if the father does it, it counts on behalf of the child. Now, the child, incapable of even understanding this whole thing, is um, basically has to uh, basically the father chooses let's say the father has 10 children and decides okay for five of them I'm going to mow the lawn for them and count it as for them and for the other five I'm gonna not do, I'm gonna choose not to do it and you start to see how cool that sounds now when I talk to people on that side of the issue, 
they say, well, don't use logic. And, you know, I have a hard time with that. Well, I do use logic, and I do use scripture. And that's kind of what brought me into this topic. I have a really hard time with that line of thinking. Now, when we were discussing things, because going into it, I really hadn't thought about this topic in like 20 years. So going back to 20 years ago, I sort of leaned toward the Calvinistic side of things, honestly. I was into, you know, I believed in predestination um, and, and stuff. Now, at first, as a kid, I didn't, uh, or at, at least in high school, I didn't. But then I started listening to the arguments, and I became sort of more of a Calvinist. And then I sort of softened that view a little bit, but I wasn't really sure. And my grandpa told me something that sort of stuck with me a little bit. He said that, think of it this way, if there's a door and it says, enter me, so you enter the door and you turn around, or, or it says, choose me or something, you enter the door and then you turn around and it says, you were chosen. And that was a, a picture that I kind of stuck with, and I thought, okay, somehow both are true. Somehow I believe that we are choosing, but he's also choosing us, that we're elect, but we also are responsible. And I didn't really know how all that worked, so I just kind of ignored it. And I really didn't bring it up. Well, this discussion came up more recently, and I, I guess I brought up the idea of... Oh no, this is what it was. They brought up the idea that... Uh, presuppositional apologetics, if you don't know what that is, you can look it up, is the superior form of apologetics. Now, I don't reject presuppositional apologetics. What has helped me more than anything has been evidential apologetics. Of course, already being a believer when, I, when it helped me. However, people like John, uh, not John, Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel were atheists or agnostics and tried to use the evidence to disprove Christ and the resurrection. And, at, and in the process, they got saved because they realized the evidence really helped their, you know, proved, or at least they couldn't argue against it. So they became believers. And so I use that as an example that, yes, evidential apologetics can be a tool to help re reach the lost. And they, they disagreed with me. And that got into the conversation of how much can the lost understand. And it kind of got me thinking about the topic again. Well, then I, I thought, okay, well, I, I guess I had to reconsider and I, I, I started thinking about the possibility, um, what if the Holy Spirit reveals himself to everyone, and then they have the ability to either reject or receive the gospel? And um, they said, no, no, it's only the elect. And I started, you know, I really had a difficult time with that, and, I, and now I'm... I'm more leaning towards that the Holy Spirit reveals himself to everyone and they all have the capability of receiving or rejecting. 
And then it got me thinking about like Native Americans and unreached people groups for you know hundreds of years. Is it possible for them to get saved? And I'm going to read some passages here that I think um, defends the idea that they can. Uh, can they can they know enough and believe enough without knowing the gospel or the New Testament or ever having a preacher or a missionary? And just thinking logically, before I even dug into scriptures, I thought, of course they could. And the Holy Spirit could be working with them, you know. Um, and before I get into the scripture, I wanted to share a story. Now, I can't confirm whether this story is true or false, so it's not proof of anything. But I heard that, you know, there was an African tribe. No missionaries had been there. And the elder of the tribe realized that the pagan idols they were worshipping were false. And... He called the, the uh, tribe to him and, and said, Look, I don't think this is right. Let's pray that the Creator God will reveal himself to us. Well, not too long after that, the first missionaries that showed up were like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or something. And they knew in their heart there that wasn't right. There was something wrong with what they were saying they somehow knew without mentally knowing they knew in their spirit, I think. And soon after that, some evangelical Christians showed up and they received and accepted that. So what that tells me is that in their spirit, in their heart, they knew the truth without knowing it in their mind, and they believed it. And that's, you know, the point of that story. So what I think is that if you ask the question, what what is it, what does the Bible say you need for salvation? If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Christ Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. Well, if they don't know the name Christ Jesus or anything about him, how could they ever be saved? Well, in John chapter one, it says that the Creator of the world was Jesus. Um, so number one, if they believe in the true creator of the world and they pray to him, they're praying to Jesus without knowing it. Number two, if they have an idea that they are sinners and they cry out to the creator for mercy, that's basically what is it to be saved? If you, you know, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. That, you know, Jesus was sent as a sacrifice to atone for sin, right? He is the Lamb of God. And so they may not know all of that happened. But does that make the sacrifice of Christ any less sufficient for them? No. I think, um, I don't know, I just, I'm convinced that they can know enough. Now I'm going to read some from, chap from Romans chapter 1 here, and um, that I think proves this point. Now I got this. I got this new microphone and I realized I didn't have it plugged in or I didn't have the settings right. So if you hear a difference, that's why. Because I didn't have this new microphone on and I was using the speaker microphone on the laptop. So um, let me see. Okay, there we go. I think 
I have to adjust this volume and that seemed to help. <sighs> so, you know, I'm not going to go back and do that again. <laughs> uh, time is short, so here we go. Romans 1, I'm going to start in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, uh, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. That is, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in right unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in him. For God hath showed it unto them. Now this is a huge verse. It's telling us that the lost, that God has revealed and showed to them the truth. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but because vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God unto the image made like to corruptible man and to birds and forehead beasts and creeping things. Now, I want to focus on that word imaginations in verse 21. And I'm reading the King James, so I don't know if they all say imaginations, but I believe that in any lie that people want to believe, it's because they want to believe their own imagination and not the truth. I had an issue like this for a long time, and I still struggle with this from time to time. If you've ever seen a movie called um, Walter Mitty, uh, The Mysterious Life of Walter Mitty, there, I think there's also a book about him. I could relate a lot to that character because oftentimes I would live in a fantasy world and not <laughs> actually take action to reach goals or whatever. Well, I think oftentimes people will live in an imagination world and they will willfully believe a lie because they would prefer to believe it than the truth. I mean, it sounds crazy, but everyone does it. I've done it. Like, you know, if you're poor and you just imagine that you're rich, it's a lot easier to, um, to um, live in the fantasy world of being rich and successful than it is to actually do the work to get to the goals that you would like to achieve. Now, you may never be rich, but, you know, um, the point is, anyway, so it says that they make um, the uncorruptible God into an image made like uncorruptible man. They would much rather worship something built with their own hands or something that's just as um, finite as we are, as mortal or... Uh, 
as yeah mortal as we are like a bird or a sun or well the sun is i mean you know what i mean it's it's a created object it's not god they would much rather worship that than the true god because if you worship something that is no better than or no doesn't know anything else that we know like an idol for example that knows nothing because it's doesn't have a brain then in a sense you are your own god it's humanism at the heart of it if you think about it or whoever's in charge will use this to scare other people into uh, believing and that they're some kind of a a leader from god right and they kind of become a cult leader and all kinds of crazy stuff they'll make people have sex with them and you know people give money to them and all this stuff so they basically use this religious thing to control other people and that's another thing where it, they don't really believe in a god and a lot of people use christian <laughs> the christian god uh for their own gain and they're not really believers in god because if they were they wouldn't do that i don't think um okay wherefore verse 24 wherefore god also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves now let me go back to before this so before this they uh now i believe that man created in god's image that is the law and everybody's born lost but we're created in god's image we all have a conscience right Everyone knows, I mean, when Adam and Eve fell, they knew the difference between right and wrong. And I believe everybody, all sinners, know the difference between right and wrong. And um, now it says here that God could give them over um, to uncleanness. So if they, if people, okay, so let me just keep reading here who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections for even their women. And that gets into, uh, gay stuff, you know, lesbian and homosexual stuff. But the point is that, um, and, and I don't, it doesn't say hardening of hearts here, but basically that's what's happening is that if people refuse to believe the truth and that which they have already known and they're capable of knowing through creation and they reject it anyway and they re prefer living for their own imaginations or that which that they want to believe, then they become... Uh, then God may harden their hearts, right? And turn them over into their into their lusts. And, uh, you know, you have an example of that with the Pharaoh, who God hardened his heart. There's another verse somewhere that says that God gave them over to a depraved mind, which means they weren't depraved fully to begin with. So the doctrine of total depravity would suggest that all lost people are totally depraved and could never receive the gospel unless the Holy Spirit 
revealed to them. Now, that part of it I can accept to the degree that I think if that's the case, I think the Holy Spirit is revealing himself to everyone, but not everyone believes or receives it. And therefore, you can say everyone is without an excuse. Let me look at this other passage here, which I think is another argument for this. Okay, Second Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Well, anyway, then it gets into um, the final judgment and or the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord and all that. But the point is, it says that, um, that the Lord is not slack, that he's willing uh, that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if only those who he elects get saved, or opens their eyes, I should say, then why wouldn't he open the eyes of everyone if he wills it? Um, so that leaves me another question, or led me to another question. Does everything that happens, is every single thing that has ever happened according to God's will? Now, if you were going to talk to a five-point Calvinist, they would say yes. <laughs> That all things, now I think God is in full control, that he allows things to happen that are not in his will. But I would suggest, no, not everything that happens is in God's will. Now he uses all things. There's a verse that says, all things work together for good for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? So, um, but I think that obviously... Then you get into the question of, did God create evil? And I would say no. Now, is evil a part of God's perfect plan? I suppose you could say he allowed it to happen. He knew it was going to happen. He created beings that he knew would rebel against him. It's kind of interesting, and it's confusing sometimes from us to, to figure this out, because we know God is omnipotent, but at the same time, there's verses that talk about him being sorry that he ever made man, you know, before the flood. What does that mean? It's kind of an interesting uh, thing to consider. Or how Moses would pray and God would change his mind. What does that mean? How does God change his mind? Does God really change his mind? I don't know. <laughs> That's what the passage says. Um you know, I think that everything God says comes to pass. Now, I, I will say that that there were conditional promises. If you do this, he will, you know, if you do good, he will bless you. If you do evil, he will uh, judge you, right? And there were times where Israel was doing evil and God told Moses he was going to wipe them off the planet now, he could have done that without, um, you know, like, 
and still keep his promise in the sense that let's suppose just like in the flood where he wiped off the you know all people except for one family from the face of the earth he still had the you know the messiah could still be born because he saved one family right <laughs> so could he have wiped off most of the israelites and and saved a chosen few to fulfill his promise of the coming messiah yeah he could have done that you know so i don't know you know it's hard for me to sit here as a finite human being and figure all that out like did god like in the sense of he has an ultimate plan and then is it possible that he changes his mind on little things along the way maybe i don't know but you know that's all kind of above and beyond our understanding so but anyway i believe that it's god's will that no one perish as it says here in second peter 3 and um but that all come to repentance but not all come to repentance so not everyone everything happens in god's will so coming up i'd like to play some clips from a uh, a debate on the subject and i'll leave a link for that as well as a link for a channel called soteriology or i don't know the word but um that i think is a a guy that i listen to that convinced me sort of on this topic but first let's listen to a song by dc talk called so help me god
three. And everybody's staring at me. I gotta go. So that was So Help Me God by DC Talk. And I like the lyrics in that. I think it's related to what I'm talking about. Uh, help me God to put my trust in you. Um, All right. So, well, the topic anyway, is total uh, depravity okay, slash total inability. Let me see um, here. And I, I'm a Calvinist. Uh, Pastor Sean is a microphone. Calvinist, right? I tell you we what. To total okay. uh, depravity, that's and we believe that total inability is very, uh, there we go. very much connected. I think to that. that's good. Doctor Flowers is a provisionist, <laughs> anyway, and he has so I'm just uh, a different play perspective the opening with respect statement to that of um, each particular area of, of reformed theology. So, um, what I want to do is to have Sean lay out the reasons why he holds to total depravity minutes. and total inability. So, here we um, go. Perhaps he can kind of walk us through some of the key passages that he uses to support that. Um, and then Dr. Flowers will share uh, his perspective. And then I'll step back a little bit and allow you guys to interact with each other. How's that sound? Sounds good. Perfect. All right. Well, you can go whenever you're ready, uh, Sean. Okay. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate it. And I, I think probably Leighton and I would both affirm total depravity to some extent, but where Calvinists usually diverge from non-Calvinists is taking it one step further to total inability. So I'm going to deal with both of those together. Um, and I want to start in the book of Romans. Um, in Romans chapter one, Paul makes the case that Gentiles are under God's wrath because they suppress his truth and unrighteousness. And then in Romans chapter 2, Paul turns his gun and points the barrel at the self-righteous Jews, charges that they too are guilty before God. And then in Romans chapter 3, Paul closes out his argument by showing the universal depravity of all people, both Jew and Gentile, um, under God. And so one of the key passages is, I'm just going to stick with Romans 3, 9 through 12, where Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, before we dive into what Paul is saying here, I want to focus on his statement that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. What does it mean to be under sin? There's, there's that Greek preposition, hupo, under, and some scholarly lexicons like the Lunida define it as under the control of, uh, the BDAG says under the obligation or power or rule of. And so some translations even use the term, they're un we're under the power of sin. And so Paul often describes sin as an enslaving power. Um, in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He uses that enslavement terminology. Um, Romans 6, 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Dominion language, bondage language, uh, Galatians 4, 8, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And so when Paul says we're under sin, that preposition really carries the idea that we're enslaved to sin, we're in bondage to sin. And notice that he says that sin is singular, not individual sins, which is true, but he almost appears to like personify sin as a tyrant, um, as a power as a slave master that exercises control and mastery, uh, that we're under its power, we're under its guilt, 
Um, so we're not only under sin as a power that renders us corrupt, but we're under sin as a power that renders us actually. Now, I know that um, the, the provisionist viewpoint differs from this because I've heard Leighton say on many occasions, you know, being enslaved to sin doesn't necessarily mean that one cannot admit this slavery and ask God to free him or herself from the slavery. And, and what I would say is that Paul will not allow this view because he goes on to describe in graphic detail what being under sin actually looks like. Well, so what does it look like, Paul? Well, he goes on and begins to string together a bunch of scriptures, especially from the Psalms, to give this description of what it looks like to be under the bondage of sin. Um, no one is righteous. This is from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Um, we are not positionally righteous before God. Uh, it's not that we're, that we're uh, neutral, but we're morally unrighteous before God. Um, no one understands. Now, this does not mean that a sinner can't understand the bare facts of the gospel, that a sinner can't understand doctrinal truths. Um, you can share the gospel with an unsaved person. They can track with what you're saying. They can understand the logic. They can understand the, the, the meaning. But fundamentally, because of the, the depth of sin that they're under, they don't understand the depth of their need and the truth of who Christ is unless God does a spiritual work in their hearts. And then Paul goes on to say, no one seeks God. Now, what does it mean to seek God? Um, does, does it mean that, you know, sometimes you hear people are seekers, that person seeking God. And I, I would say that a lot of people may seek the benefits that God provides. But like the psalmist would say um, about the thirsting and hungering for God, can a truly unsaved person seek God in the sense that he desires God's glory as the greatest good? No one seeks God. Um, all have turned aside, become worthless. Um, notice again, Paul keeps saying all. Um, no one does good. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't do acts of charity or disaster relief or the proverbial helping an old lady across the street. Um, we in the reform camp make a distinction between what we call a civic or societal good and a gospel good. In other words, unregenerate sinners can do good works, um, but they do those with impure motives and not for the glory of God. And so to do no good here means spiritual good that's pleasing to God. And, and Paul here charges that everyone without exception is born guilty, powerless, enslaved, and under sin as a condition. And so let me just give two analogies from nature. Sometimes the Bible uses nature to kind of help us understand a doctrinal truth in maybe a, a more metaphorical way. Um, so Jeremiah 13.23 can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you, can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? Now, obviously, an Ethiopian during that time would have dark skin. Can an Ethiopian wake up one day and just change the color of his skin? And the answer is no, he can't because he's born that way. That's his, his fundamental immutable nature that he can't overcome. Can a leopard change his spots? Can a leopard wake up one day and say, hey, I want to be a tiger. I want to have stripes. No, a leopard can't do that because it's its fundamental nature, immutable, to be a leopard. And so Jeremiah takes it one step further and says, okay, if those are immutable characteristics that are by nature that we see in skin color, um, in leopards, then he says, can you do good 
who are accustomed to evil? And that's a rhetorical question that's meant to be answered with, no, you can't. And why can't you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? Well, it's in your nature. It's an immutable thing that can't change about you because you were born in that condition. You're born under sin. You're born depraved. Jesus also teaches this kind of with a metaphor in the Sermon on the Mount, um, talking about fruit and trees. Uh, Matthew 7, 17 through 18. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So, you know, we understand this. Fundamentally, a diseased tree cannot produce anything positive or rise above its essential nature of corruption. In the same way, Jesus is saying those who are spiritually diseased through the corruption of sin cannot produce anything positive that would result in the good fruit of repentance and faith or anything that would please God. So what has to happen to the tree? Well, the fundamental nature of the tree has to change. The tree has to change from being a diseased tree to a healthy tree. Now, how does it do that? Do that? Uh, can the tree do that itself? And again, a provisionist or a non-reformed person would say, well, just because the tree's diseased doesn't mean it can't admit that it's infected and then cry out to be changed, to cry out for salvation. Yet what the diseased tree is doing by acknowledging that it's diseased is that it can't change its fundamental nature. So admitting you can't change is not the same thing as actually undergoing a radical inward change. Merely admitting you're a sinner doesn't change your nature so that you can produce good fruit. Something from outside of you needs to come in and overcome that disease and transform you from the inside out. And we can get to this later. We, you know, we call this regeneration. Mm. Um, and so I think probably both the reformed and non-reformed to some extent would agree with total depravity, that we're corrupt, we're born with a corrupt nature, we're born polluted by sin, uh, we have a proclivity to, towards sin. But where the reform view takes it one step further is that we also believe the Bible teaches total inability in that sinners lack the moral and spiritual ability to repent and believe, to do anything pleasing towards God because we're spiritually dead, we're enslaved, and there needs to be a work of sovereign grace. And so we could spend more time in John 6, but I mean, obviously, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He identifies himself as the bread of life. And then he, he basically makes kind of some paradoxical statements in John chapter 6. He basically says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Those who come to me, I'll never cast out. And so that's a great verse about God's uh, electing love and those that will come to him. But then in John 6, 44, it almost sounds like Jesus contradicts what he said earlier, um, but he doesn't, if we understand his flow of thought. Uh, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come. Uh, that's an emphatic statement where Jesus uses the Greek word dunamis. It's the word power. In other words, no one has the inherent ability to come. And come, basically, in the Gospel of John, means to believe or to receive Christ. There's a qualifier there, unless something has to happen. Well, what's, what's that thing that has to happen in order to overcome that inability? The Father has to draw the sinner. And all that the Father draws will be raised up on the last day. 
So the father must do a work to overcome that inability of a person who cannot come to Jesus in faith. Jesus even reiterates it down in John 6.65. He says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me. Almost the same Greek instruction there. Unless, there's the unless again, but he, he phrases it a little bit differently. This time, instead of saying, unless the Father who sent me draws him, this time in verse 65, he says, unless it's granted him by the Father or enabled. Um, I've often heard some provisionists say, you know, God grants the opportunity or God grants the ability or God grants the possibility of the person being able to come. And all that the God's granting is just more the, the choice. God grants the opportunity for the person to come. In the reform view, we'd say, no, God actually grants everything. Because the person is spiritually dead, God has to grant even the faith to come to the Son in that drawing, in that enabling. And then one last scripture, just for the sake of time, I don't want to dominate the time. But in Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 5 through 8, Paul makes a pretty strong statement about inability. Um, he writes, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, here's a question about this passage of Scripture, because Paul's contrasting a person who's in the flesh and a person who's in the spirit. And I take that to mean the person who's in the flesh is unregenerate. They're unsaved. The person who's in the spirit is saved. Question is, how does a sinner go from being in the flesh to the spirit? Well, Paul answers that back up in chapter 8, verse 2 where he says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is basically Paul's way of saying, you can't liberate yourself from sin and death. The spirit has to do that. And so the spirit is the one who sets you free from being an Adam. He sets you free from the law. He sets you free from your depravity. And then in chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, Paul gives four descriptions of an unregenerate person, which I think clearly illustrates or teaches the doctrine of total inability. Uh, first thing he says is the depraved mind is set on death, set on death. Now, Paul uses a present tense verb here to show that an unregenerate person is spiritually dead right now. W without the spirit, they are, they are dead. Their lostness not only results in future death and hell, but being in the flesh renders a person spiritually dead in the present. Mm -hmm. Second, Paul says those in the flesh are hostile to God. Uh, because of original sin, because of spiritual deadness, uh, the unregenerate sinner hates God. He stands condemned. That's, that's a strong word, hostile. We're estranged. Paul reiterates this in Colossians 1, 21 and 22. He says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So Paul says you're spiritually dead. Your mind's set on death. Your, your mind is hostile to God. You're alienated from God. But then he goes on to speak about inability. Third, he says those in the flesh to God's law. 
cannot. Now, interestingly, that's the same exact Greek word that Jesus uses in John chapter 6. Um, one, one, one second, Pastor Sean, if I could just give you uh, like a, a one minute warning yep. so that we can yep. um, hand it over yep. to Leighton, but but keep going yep. and, then, um, yep, and then we'll pass it over. Yep, I'm almost done, actually. Okay. Um, yeah, it's the same the same Greek v verb there, uh, dunamis, cannot, um, means sinners don't have the ability to submit to God's law. Now, we could say that God's law is the Ten Commandments, but is that merely what it means? I would say that the reform view says any type of command in the Bible, which I would include to repent and believe or commands, are God's law, which I would believe a sinner cannot repent and believe, as those are commands. And then fourth, an unregenerate sinner cannot please God. Um, why does why does Paul repeat the inability? Um, again, is pleasing God just a generic thing, or is repenting, believing, coming to Christ, does that please God? And so I think this passage and others clearly teach moral and spiritual inability as well as um, total depravity. Thank you so much um, for that. Uh, just to let folks know, there, there wasn't a set time, so it's not as though he was going over time. I just wanted to make sure that we would make a, a reasonable transition over to Dr. Flowers. Also, I see folks uh, interacting in the comments there. If you have a question for the latter part of this episode here, um, please preface your question with questions so I could differentiate it from all the other interesting conversations that happen in the comments section. All right. Um, so, all right. So uh, let's pass it over to Dr. Flowers for um, his presentation. All right. Yeah. If you'll share that screen for me there, Eli, um, many who've watched my debates before have seen this, but it's just to show, I think the categories, four categories of scripture passages that are often used when talking about anthropology or the nature of man with regard to man's sinfulness. We all agree, as, as Sean rightly said, we, we agree with depravity. Men are depraved, all sin, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Now you may have debates about when a person's accountable for sin, the age of accountability, all those kinds of things. But putting that aside, we all agree everybody's sinner and they all need a savior. So that's the all sin category. And a lot of times Calvinists will spend a lot of time reading over scriptures that don't really hit our point of contention because they, they're in one of these, these white cups here. They're in the all sin cup everybody sins, everybody's a sinner. And if they say it, they seem to, they want to say it louder and, and more dogmatic as if we disagree with that. And we just go, no, we, we agree. We're in bondage to sin. We're hostile towards God. All of those things you heard Sean say in his opener are true. But when, when in any other category of life does being hostile towards somebody equal an inability to confess your hostility and come into reconciliation? I know hundreds of people who are pagans who have no relationship with the father who are hostile towards their spouse or towards their child or, or towards their neighbor or somebody who comes to a place of reconciliation and they humble themselves and they reconcile. Hostility does not equal inability. So every passage you heard him talk about men's hostility towards God or their fallenness or their depravity, just put them into the all sin category um, and, and, and just say, we agree with that. But that's not the point of contention. The, the second set of verses that you'll hear is everybody needs help. And you heard him you refer to John 6. We can't do it. We can't, we can't believe unless God does something first. Well, amen. We, we're not Pelagian. We believe God takes the initiative. God hasn't left us on our own. Um, many people make the argument. We can't do it on our own. We can't do it on our own. Amen. That's one of the reasons we don't believe God's left us on our own. He sent Jesus. He sent uh, the, the Holy Spirit 
to bring conviction to the world. He sent the scriptures inspired by holy apostles. Uh, what more does he need to do to show the world who he is? He has made himself abundantly known to us. And so, yes, we all need help. We cannot be saved without his intervention. And we believe that he has intervened in a sufficient way through the gospel. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. And therefore, we agree, all need help. And he has sent the necessary help we all need. That's what provisionist is all about. Provision is, yes, we're in bondage. Yes, we're sinners. But God provides for those who are his enemies in sin. He provides for those who are in bondage. He provides for those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. So what does a dead man need to do? A dead man needs to be given new life. Well, how does a dead man get new life? According to the scripture, John 20, 31, these things have been written so that you may believe and that by believing you may have life. So how do we get new life? By believing. Jesus said, you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. He didn't say, I've refused to give you life so that you'll certainly come to me. He says, you have refused to come to me so that you may have life. What's the order of salutis, the order of salvation according to Jesus? You come to me in order to get new life, not the other way around. And so, yes, we dead men need new life. So how do dead men get new life? By listening to the life-giving truth of the gospel and believing so as to get new life. So all need help. And so you'll hear a lot of passages that Calvinists will bring up, and they'll say them dogmatically, and they'll say them with passion, and they'll preach them. And I'm just going, amen, brother, that's great. But that's not our point of contention. We all agree we need help, and we all need, we all believe he takes the initiative. He does the drawing. He does the calling. He does, he sends the gospel. He sends the Holy Spirit down like fire to bring conviction to the world. He does all of those things, all of which are sufficient to enable us to respond to his call for reconciliation. So, yes, we all need help. Now, here's the, the category of, of talk that often gets very confusing, and many people don't understand this category of talk, and this is the, the hardened category. Because in the scriptures, it does talk about, in Romans 1, as he referenced, men becoming cut off to the truth. They, they had the truth. That means they, they, they knew it, but they rejected it. They suppressed it, okay? That's their fault. That's not God's fault. It's not something God decreed for them to be from birth. They, they chose to do that willingly. They didn't have to do that. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and they can become cut off. God can, uh, they, they can reach a point of no return, so to speak, where God says, okay, you've rejected my revelation again, again, again. You've ignored the warning in Hebrews 3 and 4, which says, when you hear my voice, do not harden your heart against me. You've ignored it, and you've become hardened. You've become calloused, and now you're cut off from me. That is a category of people that largely represents the nation of Israel in the first century. And it is talked about in Scripture over and over and over and over again. And oftentimes, in my experience, Calvinists take texts that are talking about hardened Israelites who have grown calloused and self-righteous in their rebellion, who are now being cut off for the engrafting of the Gentiles, and they use those as proof text for the natural condition of all people from birth. And they're pulling these passages out of context, talking about people who are hardened not from birth that in a condition they were just born into, like their skin color, like the Ethiopian, just born like that, he can't help it. Which, by the way, that passage is talking about people who are grown and uh, accustomed to doing sin. What is that talking about? People who are habitually sinful and have therefore been hardened in their sin. That's a different category of people than the natural condition of all people from birth. And so that's the, that, that's the four different categories here. Yes, we agree all ascend, all need a savior, all need help, God's initiative, People can become hardened and calloused and cut off from the revelation of God and therefore become uh, in, in, a, 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 in an incapacitated state because if, you, if the revelation is taken away from you, you can't believe it because it's not there anymore. So if the revelation is taken away from you because you have grown hardened and calloused to it because he's taken the revelation from the Jews and he's taken it to the Gentiles, whose fault is that? 
it, it's certainly not God's. It's the Israelites' fault for rejecting him over and over and over again. But if total inability is true, then they have no more control over their ability to believe the gospel than they do of their skin color. And one of the reasons intuitively we find bigotry and judging people for things they have no control over, intuitively we judge that as wrong and, and as unjust. Why? Because we know intuitively it is wrong to judge and punish somebody for something they have no control over. And yet that's exactly what the doctrine of total inability suggests that you have no control or ability to believe the Bible, and yet God is going to hold you accountable for what you do with his words. Hear me when I say this. The Bible says you will be judged on the final day, not by Adam's sin, not by your morality, the good and the bad you end up doing. What will you be judged by? The very words of Christ, John chapter 12, Jesus says. The way that Paul put it is, they, they perish because they refuse to love the truth so as to be saved. They don't perish because Adam sinned. They don't perish because... They themselves sin. They're sinners in heaven and hell. What's the difference between those in heaven and hell? Whether they accept the truth or reject the truth. And you're responsible for what you do with the truth of God. And if you believe that you can't accept truth because of a condition you were born in, that you have no more control over than you do the color of your skin, then intuitively all of us know that this is not just. It is not right. It is not fair. It is not biblical in my estimation. Of course, that's the argument for today. And the verses you just heard Sean lay out all fit within those white categories of the cups that we just laid out. All sin, all need God's help, and people can become hardened and cut off in their rebellion. Not one of them, in my estimation, even comes close to suggesting that people are born by nature and divine decree, mind you, in a condition that they can't control, where they cannot respond positively to God's own appeals to be reconciled from their fallen condition. The, the Bible doesn't even come close to suggesting this. One of the scriptures I want to, uh, to, to pull into this, and since the screen's up, I can just leave it up there, um, is Acts chapter 28, beginning in verse 23. It says, They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning until evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. There's an act of the will right there. Now, why would they not believe? According to Calvinists, they would not believe because they weren't unconditionally chosen before they were born and irresistibly regenerated or, or effectually caused to believe. The Bible never says this anywhere in this text or any other. It seems to suggest this is their will. They chose not to believe. Um, and they disagreed among themselves and began to leave, but Paul made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke truth to your ancestors. He's speaking, obviously, to Israelites here. Go to this people. Who's this people? Israel, and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Now, I want you to make note of this statement right here, because you see it throughout the scriptures quite regularly. Is this a condition from birth by divine decree because of the fall of Adam, or is this a condition of hardened people? Just answer that question, because that is this debate. Total inability teaches that they are ever hearing and never understanding ever seeing and never perceiving from birth due to a condition they have no control over by the sovereign divine decree. That is nowhere established in the Bible. Why does Paul say they're in this condition? For this people's heart has what? Become calloused. Notice it didn't say they were born by nature calloused. It says they have become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. So who closed their eyes? The Bible blames that on them, not a divine decree not total moral inability, not Adam. He blames it on them. They have closed their eyes. They have suppressed the truth. They did that by choice, not by necessity. 
meaning they could have done otherwise. How do I know that? It even says otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn. That's repentance. And I would heal them. That expresses his desire to heal them. So this is their fault for being in this condition. It's not a condition from birth that's beyond their control. It is their fault for being in this condition. It sums it up in verse 28. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. If this is a natural condition from birth, ever seeing, never perceiving, ever hearing, never understanding, then why would he contrast the Jews with the Gentiles here? They're both in the same exact condition. If Calvinism is true, a condition from birth. He's contrasting the hardened, self-righteous Jews with the barbarian, still sinful, still need of a savior, still corrupt Gentiles. What's the difference between the two? One has grown hardened and callous because they have closed their eyes to the truth of God. The others, those sinful, are still able to listen. They're still able to be molded. They're still able to hear and respond. Now, the same thing could happen to them if they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but you can't assume they're already in that condition from birth, which is exactly what the doctrine of total inability suggests. Now, you can go ahead and take that screen down there, um, and, and let me let me just cover a few of the, the passages that, that Sean brought up in his if opening. I can, if I can just really quick, if you can, when it, your time is done, if you can keep those images in the catch here, so just in case uh, questions come up and the cups sure. will become helpful again. So yeah. uh, I thought that, they're, okay. They're so, yeah, they're still here. Okay, so um, for example, Romans chapter three, um, that we're enslaved under sin's power. We, we, again, we don't have a problem with this, but being enslaved doesn't mean that you can't confess that you're enslaved. Just like being addicted to alcohol or being addicted to drugs doesn't mean that when your family confronts you, you can't say, yeah, you're right, guys, I can't stop uh, drinking. I can't stop doing drugs. Uh, on my own power, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely stained with my addiction. I can't stop. What, what Calvinists seem to be saying is that because you're addicted to the drug, because you're addicted to sin, which you are from birth, Therefore, you can't even confess that fact and be reconciled when people confront you with it. And this is not established in the Bible. Again, this is, this is the burden of proof that the Calvinist has to establish. They have to establish not just that we're sinful and addicted to sin. They have to establish that addicted to sin people can't confess that fact and receive the help that's being offered. Now, Sean mentioned uh, this with regard to the trees. Um, you know, a tree, good tree, bad tree, those kinds of things. And his, 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 his assumption is that the tree has to be made into a good tree before it can even confess that it's a bad tree. So the, the tree has to be changed into a good tree, and then it can confess it was a bad tree. It's like the heart. The heart has to be given, a, you have to give them a new heart before they can even confess that they have a bad heart. Now, he, he, he then went on to say, no, we need regeneration. We need, again, we agree we need regeneration and change. But regeneration comes to those who humble themselves and confess their corruption of heart. So one, the, the heart surgeon comes to somebody and says, your heart is corrupt. Absolutely, you're going to die. You, you must have a new heart. The, the, the patient can hear that and say, no, I, I think I'm strong enough. My heart can make it. I don't need you. And he walks away. Whose fault's that? It's the patient's fault. He, he rejected the diagnosis of the doctor. Or if the patient says, doctor, I trust you, give me a new heart. It doesn't mean he's giving himself a new heart. It doesn't mean he's regenerating himself. It doesn't mean give himself new life. He's submitting to the will of the surgeon saying, okay, I put myself, I trust myself to you. My life is entrusted to you. You have to do the surgery. I can't do it for myself. And then regeneration happens on our view. So we still agreed regeneration needs to happen. Change needs to happen. 
but the order of the change is you confess so as to be healed, not you're healed so as to confess you need healing. Again, just one after another, the Calvinist just reverses the order that I think the scripture clearly lays out for us. No one is righteous. Again, we agree. No one is righteous in accordance with the law. Doesn't mean that you can't confess that fact and trust in the righteousness of another. And that's, that's exactly what he just seemed to assume there, that because no one's righteous, therefore you can't trust in the righteousness of Christ. The Bible never makes that leap. Sean did. No one understands. He even admits. That doesn't talk about mental assent. You can understand stuff, but just like we read from um, Acts 28, they're ever seeing and never perceiving. They're ever hearing but never understanding. That's a spiritual condition. Is that a spiritual condition from birth, a natural condition of every lost sinner, or those who have closed their eyes and have grown calloused and hardened? You've got to ask yourself the question, who is the Bible talking about when he's describing people in a hardened, callous condition? You've got to look at the context of those passages. No one seeks God. Okay, so that means that we can't, therefore, respond to a God who seeks us and comes to us with the gospel. Of course, no one seeks God on their own, but that means we can't we can't confess our lostness when he comes and seeks after the, the lost. No one is, does good. Again, we agree. No one does good in accordance with the law of God. It's just like Romans chapter 9, verses 30 and following says that the Jews pursued righteousness through the law and they did not attain it. The Gentiles pursued righteousness by faith, and they have attained it. Both of them pursued. One of them is pursuing by their own righteousness, their own works of the law, which is impossible to attain righteousness through those means. The other is pursuing by doing what? Not by laws. Many of them didn't keep any of the laws of the Old Covenant. What are they pursuing through then? They're pursuing through the righteousness of Christ, and they have attained it. Now, what Calvinists are doing is saying, in the same way you can't attain righteousness through the law, so too you can't attain righteousness through faith either. It's just as impossible. It's as, it's as, as impossible to attain righteousness by works of the law as it is to attain righteousness by faith in Jesus. Both of them are completely unattainable to you. Paul never makes this link. This is the, the, the dichotomy Paul always holds up is because you can't attain righteousness through works, therefore you must trust in the righteousness of the one who did the work for you, the righteousness of Christ. You must give up trying and trust in his righteousness. And what Calvinists are coming along saying is, no, you can't do that. Because you can't do the laws, therefore, you can't trust in the one who fulfilled the law for you. And therefore, I think Calvinism falls short on that front. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave a link for the entire debate, as well as some other links. Um, Mike Winger does a good job on Romans 9. He does a non-Calvinist interpretation of Romans 9. And... Um, I'm also going to recommend the entire YouTube channel called Soteriology, Soteology 101. And uh, yeah, so I'll leave several links below on this topic. And, you know, I'm not here to tell you what to believe, but I'm just, you know, using my freedom of speech to tell you what I think about this. All right. Thank you all and have a wonderful day. This is... The most awesomest podcast of all time. I'm your host, Rob Hendrick. This podcast is brought to you by Proverbs 16:18. Rob, go for instructions.